In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. It was about 14 years ago that I first stepped into an Anglican church. Uh, and something I've discovered in that subsequent time is that you can call yourself an Anglican and believe pretty much whatever you want. It's kind of why I love being in this tradition. Whenever I'm asked what Anglicans believe about any given theological issue, I feel like an honest answer means I have to list all of the potential responses because Anglicanism is about as broad on most theological issues as the rest of the church is combined. I don't love it for the freedom to believe whatever I want, to sort of make up my own theology, but because the diversity of thought forces me to be in communion with people I vehemently disagree with. This diversity is built into our DNA going back to what is called the Elizabethan Compromise, where Queen Elizabeth I insisted that both Protestants and Catholics would be included in the Church of England and wouldn't be persecuted for their beliefs, saying famously, I would not open windows into men's souls. Now, of course, that kind of variety can cause some tension, whether we're talking about the nature of ordination, the role of the Holy Spirit, or the function and even number of sacraments. We read this morning about what you might call an Anglican-esque theological variety in the church in Rome. Paul, in his letter, addresses, addresses a diversity of opinions based on whether or not to eat meat, because presumably much of the meat you could buy was offered uh, to pagan gods in a pagan ritual, and the observance of special days, possibly retaining some of the Jewish festivals and Christian worship. And just like the theological issues that divide us now, you can see how these issues could start to bubble up and cause dissension in the community. How can you eat meat if it's been offered to the devil? Or how can you not celebrate the Feast of Booths when God himself told us in the Old Testament to celebrate this feast day? You can see how what seem like abstract ideas can suddenly cause real division. And sometimes when we differ with other Christians on these non-credal issues, we tend to either say this is the most important issue and you must choose a side and everyone who disagrees with me is wrong and reprobate, or we might say that since there's a diversity of opinions, it doesn't actually matter. Who cares? Believe whatever you want. We don't know the answer. Who will ever know? Paul doesn't pick a winner in the fight, although he does refer to those who don't eat meat as weak. Uh, I'd like to apply that to all vegetarians, but I don't actually mean that. Um, <laughs> he means weak in spirit, not weak in body. But he does tell them to be fully convinced in their own mind. Paul says, pursue Jesus because you will, be, you will give an account to God about these matters. You're going to have to answer to God, but no one made you the manager of everybody else's spiritual life. Paul doesn't tell them to avoid wrestling with the issues, believing these issues, believing strongly about these issues, but he sort of recognizes a place for what I might call a gracious tension. Because when we move from the position of theological disagreement into a place of judgment, we're assuming God's role. We're having a quarrel with a fellow servant, and then we're acting as if we are the master, putting ourselves above others, insisting that we have this perfect knowledge of how God will respond to their actions. And this is what Joseph refuses to do to his brothers in the story we read in Genesis. What we read is at the end of Joseph's story. So we've already gone through his technicolor dream coat, his, his sale into slavery, his terrible time in prisons in Egypt, and his eventual ascension up to essentially the right-hand man of the pharaoh. And then we have the reconciliation. Joseph's brothers and his dad end up in Egypt. He forgives them for what they did. We've already gone through all of that. They have already hugged it out, as it were. But when their father Jacob dies, 
the brothers don't believe that Joseph has actually forgiven them. And so they make up this lie about Jacob's final wishes, saying, Joseph, father said, you really ought to forgive us now of our wicked deeds. Joseph's response isn't to actually address this sort of faulty will, but he says, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Judgment isn't his to give on this matter. Joseph says, that's not my place. As I was reading this, I thought um, of dodgeball, as youth pastors often do. Before we play dodgeball in the youth group, I preface the game like this. Remember, one day you will stand in front of Jesus in judgment, and you will have to answer for every sin you've committed, and you're going to feel really stupid if one of those sins is that you lied today in dodgeball. So just think about that. Maybe it's a little heavy-handed. I think it's pretty effective. But it should be clear that doesn't seem like what Joseph is doing here. He doesn't seem to be giving this veiled threat of, I'm not going to judge you because God's really going to judge you. He seems to have truly forgiven his brothers. Now, his rationale is that it all worked out for the good, that God had used this terrible scenario and their wicked deeds for their good and for Joseph's good and for the good of many. But we can't necessarily lean on Joseph's story as a model for our own lives, at least not in a sort of one-for-one. When people wrong us, we can't count on, well, God will turn this into a fantastic scenario and I'll become the prince of Egypt, or whatever other prosperity you think might come from wicked deeds. And so instead, I want to focus on the rationale for forgiveness that Jesus gives in our gospel reading. Peter asks him, how many times should I forgive my brother? As many as seven times? which to us sounds ridiculous, but that's because we know the ending of the story. Jesus tells this parable about a man who has forgiven this immense debt, who then had punished someone who owed him a comparably small debt. And I did a little math um, to kind of help us out. A talent is about 20 years worth of labor. And our protagonist here owes 10,000 talents, or assuming he's a good Israelite and worked six days a week, roughly 62 million days worth of wages. A hundred denarii, what the second man owed, is worth a hundred days worth of wages. And the comparison between the two is meant to be absurd. First, no one would owe that much money in the first place, 200,000 years worth of salary. But this is the perspective we are given. When you withhold forgiveness from someone else, it's like you're a person who demands repayment on a hundred days worth of work when you've just been forgiven and absolved of 62 million days' worth. N.T. Wright puts it this way, from God's point of view, the distance between being ordinarily sinful, what we all are, and extremely sinful, what the people we don't like seem to be, is like the distance between London and Paris seen from the point of view of the sun. It's a comparison, maybe, and maybe people are more sinful, or maybe someone's wronged you more, but that kind of a comparison is inconsequential to the way God sees us and what God has forgiven us. Your neighbor will never owe you more than what you owe God. And you will never forgive someone else more than what God has forgiven you. And rationing or holding on to your forgiveness is just an attempt to postpone revenge. It's putting yourself in the judgment seat and refusing to pass on the grace that's been given to you. Now, this isn't to say that we don't hold one one another accountable for sin. Because just before the parable we heard today, Jesus gave instructions on how to approach someone who sins against you. We read it last week. Sort of you go to them directly, you bring other people. 
And so in both matters of differing Christian theology and practice and in matters of sins against one another, we have to do the hard work of living together and working through differences. But the withholding of forgiveness as a response to this is simply incompatible with a life lived to Christ. Jesus says it explicitly at the end of this passage, and it's implied when we say the Lord's Prayer, that there is a link between us offering forgiveness to others and God forgiving us. We feel uncomfortable because in the text, it sounds like a causal link. It sounds like if you don't forgive someone, God will not forgive you. And then we work on our theology to make sure that we say, well, that can't possibly be the case. That's not the unforgivable sin. And we work around it. And I don't know what to do with it because Jesus is pretty explicit about it. If we've been forgiven so much, we must forgive others. It's the same way as if someone had been forgiven 62 million days worth of work and then refusing to forgive 100 days. We may joke about uh, the callers being a license to administer guilt. Father Martin makes that joke all the time. It's funny. But the primary thing that we offer as a church, as believers, as the people of God, is a call to repentance and then unmerited forgiveness, unearned favor. Grace, that's what it is. It's not forgiveness for people who deserve it. It's forgiveness for people who don't. And we give it out because we've already received so much of it. Which is hard, especially when other Christians are just such jerks. You can probably think of some right now. And you know what? Their actions probably merit critique. Other people, all of us probably merit real critique, real need for repentance. But that critique, that call to repentance, can never move into a place of judgment. And the reason we don't judge one another, is, and Paul makes it clear, not only does he say, who are you to judge the servant of another master, but then he says this, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Not only does he say, you're not the one doing the judging, we might in our minds take comfort that, well, God will judge them and then God will get them. But when it comes to other believers, Paul says, no, they're going to stand in front of the judgment. You want them to fall, but it's Christ who strengthens them. It's Christ who makes them stand, and they will stand faithfully in front of the judgment seat. Grace is this scandal that God forgives all the people that you hate, that you don't want to forgive. Now, this morning, I'm not trying to say that we should ignore problems, pretend like differences don't exist or be nice all the time just because God forgives. Grace came at a cost, and reconciliation costs us as well as we work out the life of the people of God. We must call each other to repentance because that work of turning from self and turning towards God produces fruit of the Spirit. Leaving your brother and, or sister in sin, leaving them to stew in sin, is a toxic medicine for them. They will continue to feast on that and not have their souls freshened. They will not be changed. And if we really believe the gospel does things now, not just later, it's not important that people are ultimately forgiven, but that they might actually experience new life in the now. And so allowing one another to continue in terrible sins that bind us and hurt us is doing harm to one another. And sometimes the sins we commit against one another leave scars. They wound one another. And I'm not saying this morning that the answer is to go immediately from an I'm sorry apology to now we are closest companions and I would gladly donate you one of my kidneys. Because there are these scars that we receive from one another and part of working out the not yetness of the life we live in is navigating the difficulty of those scars. 
But underneath it all, we have to remember that for our sins, Jesus was content to receive scars. That in the incarnation, God was willing to go from distance from sin to enter into our pain in order to reconcile us to him. And if that's what God does, if God who has no good reason, has no debts that he has been forgiven, is willing to come to us to forgive our sins, how can we not be willing to never give up in seeking ways to reconcile to one another and reconciling one another to God all through the power of the cross? And so I pray this morning that we might be quick to apologize, quick to forgive, and slow to judge. We have been forgiven so much. May God soften our hearts and give us the courage and humility to extend the grace that we have already been given to one another. Paul models it for us in a verse that we hear part of every Sunday in what are called the comfortable words. The saying is true and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But then Paul continues, of whom I am the foremost. May that be our mindset, that God is saving sinners of whom I am the foremost. May we learn to remember how much we've been forgiven so that we are never the bottleneck of the grace that God has already poured into us, that he longs to give to everyone we know in and out of the church. Amen.